the crucified Christ reveals the authentic meaning of freedom. He lives it fully in the total gift of himself and calls his disciples to share in his freedom. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic, oh no, oh, I mean your seasonal Catholic podcast on evangelization and discipleship. My name is Mike Gomer-Gormley, and I am joined, as always, by Dave, the moral absolutist Van Bickle. How we doing, Dave? (laughs) (laughs) I would like to go down in history, is that? No, no, you know what? But the greatest name in church history is Gergou Lagrange, the sacred monster of Thomism. Yeah. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, but his other name was the Great Goo, and I don't think that's as good. (laughs) I don't know. If you're a baseball player, (laughs) the Great Goo. (laughs) So we have been journeying through Veritatis Splendor. We have actually been journeying through three encyclicals during this series. This is the last one to wrap up our seasonal content. Next, we'll go through listener questions as well as interviews with Catholic theologians, authors, and evangelists like yourself, good people, in order to go deeper into the mystery of Christ and redemption, living in that beautiful sphere of redemption. We have covered Redeemer of Man, the first encyclical of Pope John Paul. We have reviewed Mission of the Redeemer on the missionary activity of the church, which is incredible and the most cited uh, or the most read encyclical of Pope John Paul. And now we're going through probably the most difficult of the encyclicals of Pope John Paul, Veritatis Splendor, the Splendor of Truth, Understanding the Church's Fundamental Moral Theology Today. And like everything, he starts always with the Second Vatican Council and drawing on the wisdom of the Council Fathers in order to address the signs and times of today, just as he did in Redeemer of Man, where he focused so much on man's predicament, right, modern man's predicament, how we're afraid of the products that we produce, and there's fear of, you know, nuclear weapons, communist totalitarianism, uh, atheistic secular humanism, all these different things. He wants to address man in the middle of this. He can emphasize the good, but draw out the bad and show how the gospel remedies this. All right, I have a question for you. Okay. I have an opening question for you. An opening question. So reading these three documents Mm -hmm. together and and kind of like taking this theme of this this is a continuation for him of the council. Like it's an interpretation of the council. Yeah. Has it changed your view of the documents on the council? Not only has it changed – so. Yeah. So I will say first and foremost, Mission of the Redeemer yeah. has changed my view of the Agentes document of Vatican. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because some of the quotes that I were pulling out and 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 bolding and underlining were the quotes that was actually from Vatican II and not from JP II. And I was like, that's incredible. It also, the document I hate the most from Vatican II, if I'm allowed to say that, right, is Gaudium et Spes. I'm just like, Ugh, okay, here we go, you overly optimistic people. Oh, really? But JP II pulls out all of the greatest parts of yeah. Gaudium et Spes. Yeah. And it's, there's a reason why a guy like Dr. Larry Chapp, who is a very faithful novel theology son of the church, um, he wrote a, a document called him and a bunch of others called uh, Manifesto of the New Traditionalism. Yeah. So he's a very traditional Catholic. He's not a Thomist, but a very traditional Catholic. He talks about this. Um, he called his blog Gaudium and Spes 22. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> Good Lord. Yeah. Oh, I need more You coffee. took a long time to get to that. I really did because I wanted to lay out his own inheritance. So many times, so many times when the Pope throughout these documents is yeah. saying what the council fathers were saying, you know, yeah. or, re- or I, when I'm reiterating what the council fathers said, I'm like, oh, 
That's what they were saying. So this has really, really helped me to, to be able to understand it. Yes. Well, let's let's jump in because I'm excited to talk about chapter three. Okay. Okay. Well, let me give a quick survey okay. of chapter two. So chapter two is where he goes through very specific moral issues. Again, we said like, you need to read this paragraphs like 28 to 83 or whatever. They're very intense. They are very intense. But um, he talks about this theological realignment that is necessary for Catholic moral theology, right? We also have Vatican II. We're drawing on the, the new psychological sciences and, and biology and chemistry and all this and, and sociology. But that doesn't mean that then ethics and, and morality no longer come from the gospel. And so he wants to kind of pull back on some of these things or reemphasize things. Also, freedom and law. What is their relationship? Their relationship, the modern conception of freedom is the ability to do whatever I want, what we would call license. So the relationship between freedom and law, he wants to clarify that actually freedom enables us to keep the law, to choose to keep the law. Freedom, the, the great analogy that Aristotle gives is a harp, a man is to a good man what a harpist is to a good harpist. And a harpist is a good harpist when he's internalized the rules and the laws and the virtues, the excellences of playing the harp. Right, a piano player. I am free. That lower freedom, freedom from. I am for the freedom of indifference. I'm free to make noise on a piano or to not make noise on a piano. But only someone who has submitted themselves and internalized the laws of music and the piano are free to make music. So he's calling us to a higher form of freedom, not just freedom from constraint, but freedom for excellence. This is something that comes explicitly laid out in a wonderful book called The Sources of Christian Ethics by Father Survey Pinkares, who actually was one of the people who helped him draft this encyclical. Father Pinkares is now deceased, but he was a brilliant Dominican theologian, and this draws on a lot of the wisdom of St. Thomas Aquinas. Next, he wants to talk about the natural law, it can't be reduced to mere sociology. It is not just a crude biologism. Oh, here, your body wants to do this. Therefore, it is uh, a mortal sin to do to violate what your body wants to do. That's not what the natural law is. He also wants to clarify the relationship between conscience and the truth, which is very important today because people think, I literally heard a homily where a priest said, uh, and this just shocked me, he said, not even church teaching can supersede the judgment of conscience. And it's like, no, 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 no. Before we follow our conscience, we have right. a moral duty to form it. And the church gives us that formation. It was awful to hear someone say that. And then he goes through what we mentioned earlier, the fundamental choice where it's like, well, I've made a radical decision to follow Christ. Therefore, that's all that matters. You know, I can make all these other moral things. And he says, no, what happens to the moral act? What happens to mortal and venial sin when we get rid of this? Like, no, you can't do that. Mortal sin sends souls to hell. Right. Mortal sin did not. It, it is such a destruction. It is a death of the soul in their relationship with God. And we're going to paper over it with our cute little uh, fundamental option theory. And he's like, no, you, what we're doing is imprisoning souls. I thought the purpose of evangelization was to bring people into the marvelous light of God. Yeah. And I mean, you know, most of the people you serve are the fundamental option people. Well, they're pretty good. He's a good person. Yeah. You hear that all the time from moms. Like he's such a good person. He's living with his girlfriend, but he's such a good person. It's like, well, that's really difficult here, <laughs> you know, because what do you mean? Like, I'm sure he's a good person. What's that? He didn't kill people? Right. Exactly. Right. right. What, what do you call someone that fornicates, a fornicator, right? What do you call someone that lies, a liar, right? Like, what do you call someone that's obsessed with money, greedy, right? We don't want to label those terms. And here's the deal. It's not our place to judge, but that doesn't mean 
then it becomes, then it restricts us from bringing up the moral commands because these things are what liberate people. Exactly. That's exactly right. If you want your son to be in heaven, period. I mean, that's answer that question. If you want your son to be in heaven, then what? And so he attacks certain certain things, consequentialism or utilitarianism, uh, proportionalism. These are all things that basically say we can do evil so that good may come. And Jesus, and the very whole clear, world is operating on those things right now. Yes, we are a utilitarian or consequentialist society, and he attacks it viciously the that cold moral calculus that thinks it can it can deduce the right mean or the right ends even if we just if we just break a few eggs we can make an amazing omelet and it's like yeah go away marxist okay so now we're into chapter three dave's favorite part of this encyclical yeah chapter three and and i want to i want to echo back to pope john paul saying that modern man trusts witnesses more than teachers and this is what he's doing with chapter three, because he brings up this idea of how do, how do, what is one of the proofs that this is all true? And he says that martyrdom, martyrdom is one of the proofs that this, that this idea, that this idea of moral truth is real. And uh, he, he opens it and he says, the fundamental question, which the moral theories mentioned above pose in a particular forceful way is that of the relationship of man's freedom to God's law. It is ultimately the question of the relationship between the freedom and truth. According to the Christian faith and the church's teaching, only the freedom which submits to the truth leads to the human person to his true good. The good of the person is to be in the truth and do the truth. So once again, this undeniable link between freedom and truth and the fact that freedom is the freedom to be able to act as we ought and not freedom to be able to do whatever we want. I just want to point out the title of chapter three, which is you can feel its import for preaching the gospel. Chapter three, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. First Corinthians one seventeen. moral good for the life of the church and the world. So he's just talking about for freedom, Christ has set us free. That's the beginning of his application to missiology, to all of these things, yeah. to our fundamental way of evangelizing in the world. Yeah. He moves on in that paragraph, uh, that very first paragraph. He says, all around us, we encounter contempt for human life after conception and before birth. The ongoing violation of basic rights of the person, the unjust destruction of goods, minimally necessary for a human life. Indeed, something more serious has happened. Man is no longer convinced that only in truth can he find salvation. So he's talking about how society has lost its moorings, right? We we no longer equate truth and salvation, which is like, you know, Gomer mentioned, like we use utilitarianism in morality, but we also just live by utility now. Everything is utility now. Even like taken in a broad sense, like, you know, you talk to a kid in, in junior high, it's like, how can I work the least to make the most so that I can buy the things that'll make me happy. Right. I mean, that, that's such a utilitarian way to look at, at life. And it's the opposite of the gospel. So it seeps down and in, even into just normal family cultures. He says concrete uh, going on in that paragraph uh, 84 concrete situations are unfavorably contrasted with the precepts of the moral law, nor is it any longer maintained that when all is said and done, the law of God is always the one true good of man. Boy, are we seeing that every single day in the news now. 
every single case of abortion or, or, or crisis pregnancy is being thrown in our faces because what they're saying is how dare you outlaw abortion when a woman could be 10 years old or, or a woman could be a victim of rape or a woman could have her life at stake. What This is exactly what the Pope is talking about, that when conditions become hard, all of a sudden we start weighing the morality of that. Yeah. And it, it's you just cannot do that. I just read this morning, Gomer, uh, an article about uh, that they're just pushing this all over social media about this poor, poor girl who um, was raped. And she's 10 years old. And, and the article is about the fact that she could not get an abortion in Ohio because they, f- they found heart activity. So she had to go to Indiana. This poor girl had to endure the trauma of going to Indiana to go, to go get an abortion. And it, it is, it's like calling the dead back to life to say, so this girl was traumatized, was victimized. And you think that it's a good idea to make her then victimize her own child. Do you not realize that this is a second, yeah. you know, a d- just destruction of this poor little girl? But this is exactly what the Pope is saying. It's like when the going gets tough, then morality becomes, okay, we can talk about this. We can yeah. we can see what's different. Yeah, there is a phrase that we say often in my condo, which I don't have a condo. Uh, that's a quote from the office. <laughs> yeah, as totally. he's known around my condo. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but it is pastoral does not mean loophole. And oftentimes people think when the popes are talking about pastoral activity, it means softening the commandments, giving loopholes, giving exceptions, skirting the rules, not following the rubrics, whatever you want to say, so that, you know, whatever outcome. And because it's a difficult situation. But here's the deal. When you take the gospel at full value, I mean, it is very difficult to live the Christian life. It is very difficult, which is why we need grace. And so those moments of difficulty, those are the moments of maximum grace. And we don't want to accept it, right? We don't. We just want the problem to go away. Fix it. Insert technology. Insert technique. Insert abortion. Insert contraception. Insert all of these things. I don't want to fast. I don't want to abstain. I don't want to say no to sex. I don't want to you know, do all these things. I don't want to have to renegotiate how I do my contracts to make money in a just manner or whatever. I'm going to lose too much. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. No, it's like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. This is why martyrdom is the ideal of the human, of the Christian walk is because even if you're not brutally murdered, something in you is going to die because if you're going to live by the flesh, you will die. If you're going to live by the spirit, you have to put the death to deeds of the flesh. Wouldn't it be better if you were in poverty and died in poverty, but went to heaven for all eternity and never betrayed your nobility? So, for instance, I have kids that say to me, they do the thing, right? The moral thing where it's like, well, so can I tell like a white lie? Like, what's the big deal? And I go, okay, think about it this way. You have used speech and human reason and in which are tremendous gifts that only human beings have, right? And you have used the ability to say the truth in order to betray yourself, your words, your dignity for the cheap price of a white lie. They're like, well, when you put it that way, and I was like, right, because that's what it is. That's reality. What you're trying to do is get away with maybe hurting someone's feelings. I don't want to hurt someone's feelings. The really what you're afraid to do is acknowledge the truth for what it is, right? And totally. when we do that, the little things is where it matters the most. This is why he ends paragraph 85. He says, the crucified Christ reveals the authentic meaning of freedom. 
he lives it fully in the total gift of himself and calls his disciples to share in his freedom. What he's getting at here is, yeah, we, we could give in. We could give in. But is there freedom in that? All we're doing then is chaining ourselves to that which we're giving into. Instead, what Christ does is he fully gives himself and dies, right? Unto death he is faithful. Unto death, which is what we're talking about with this whole theme of martyrdom. Yeah. You know, there are so many things that we can talk about. Universal and unchanging moral norms at the service of the person and society. One of the things that I think about, that's paragraphs 95 and following. One of the things I think about is how we compromise individuals for the sake of society, right? We take the Caiaphas principle yeah. and we apply it hyperactively. The Caiaphas principle, is it not better that one man should die than the whole nation perish? And you begin to say like, yeah, that's, that's the reasoning of uh, so many violations of the U.S. Constitution, right? So many violations of the law, so many violations of morality, right? Where we hold society above the human person, yeah, right? And that's dangerous. It's utility. Right. It is pure utilitarianism or consequentialism. It is better for us to deny these, this category of people their rights or whatever, their respect under the law, whatever it is than for the whole nation to suffer. That's why we have cover-ups, right? When the church covers up her own crimes, right? It is better to lie right. and to cover up and to shuffle people around than it is to own our mistakes. Well, what happens? Well, we still have to own our mistakes, but now we have to own a cover-up too, which is even worse, right? Because yeah, we're hiding sin. Yeah, or or even not hiding it. Like think about like when people, the argument for slavery, when it was like, well, it, it will destroy the economony if, yeah. we, if we get rid of slavery. Yeah. Like, well, what are we, this is ridiculous, right? Right. The famous thing in the UK during the parliament when abolitionists had really won sway in the parliament this commentator writing it in that time said, because a huge portion of the British economy was based on the slave trade right, right. because they were a naval empire and right. the sun never set on the British empire and they were shuffling slaves all over the world. And within 10 years, they are bombing from the sea ports of slave traders, yeah. right? Like, and the guy said, never has an entire, uh, an entire country chosen willfully econocide the death of their own economy. But what happened? It, it didn't die. It didn't die. No, of course. You know, not. and that's the amazing thing is like when we begin to walk in life, a lot of the things that are our own self-destruction end up being curbed, right? We end up preventing our own self-destruction. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. I'm not saying if you follow Christ, you're yeah. going to get rich, healthy. Yeah, and all that I'm glad stuff. you just said that. But what I'm saying <laughs> is, right, like in the heart of following Christ, a lot of the abuses that we bring upon ourselves, the self-destructive downfalls end up being transformed. Yeah. Right? And, and I think like what, what Gomer's really getting at is like when you, when you have societal issues uh, that are unjust, you make your own hell. Right. Mm. So like they're living in their own hell where they're, they're profiting from the slave trade and owning slaves they don't realize how bad it is, you know? And, and so, I, I mean, it's just, it creates all kinds of other issues and problems. Yeah, so he says in paragraph 101, in the political sphere, it must be noted that truthfulness in the relations between those governing and those governed, openness in public administration, impartiality in the service of the body politic, respect for the rights of political adversaries, safeguarding the rights of the accused against summary trials, trials and convictions, the just and honest use of public funds, the rejection of equivocal or illicit means in order to gain, preserve, or increase power at any cost. All these are principles which are primarily rooted in and, in fact, derive their singular 
urgency from the transcendent value of the person and the objective moral demands of the functioning of states. When we like, so all of these things that he's talking about, I mean, if you think of the abuses going on in the United States, in your individual state, in your county, I mean, think about this, the relations between governing and those governed openness, right? We use the word transparency all the time, impartiality in the service of the body politic, right? People claiming that justice is partial privilege, which literally is a combination of private law, right? Like all this stuff, respect for the rights of political adversaries, cancel culture, all this stuff, safeguarding the rights of the accused against summary trials and convictions. We destroy people's entire existence on social media before we even go to the court of law, right? Like that famous story, that one woman who tweeted something, it was supposed to be a it's actually supposed to be a woke joke and it backfired on her because she was flying to Africa and it was like a 12 hour flight. And by the time she landed, there was an internet countdown because she was fired from her company because this became a whole ordeal. Oh my God. Um, she said, basically, at least I won't get AIDS cause I'm white. And it was a horrible, she was making a joke of like, because right. com- countries right. who are white have not given them the aid that they need to fight AIDS. And so that's what her literally was like a pro African joke, but it was horrible and bad taste and all that stuff. But it, the company fired her publicly and then everyone was counting down until her flight landed and it prompted a guy to write a book. So you've been shamed by the internet. What now? (laughs) Right? So it's, it's crazy. And so we need to see this, that we're entering into a realm of ethical relativism where we don't care because they're the adversary. So we can do whatever we want to the adversary. We can return evil for evil, reviling for reviling. And Jesus says, no, bless and do not curse, right? Rejoice and be glad when they insult you, persecute you falsely on my account for thus they persecute the prophets. Like, you know, you're doing something good when you are bringing down this persecution. I, I want to, I want to make sure we have time to cover paragraph 106, 107, the morality and new evangelization. You know what? I don't. Because it, 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 it just it brings us back to our topic here. It, the, in, that first paragraph, 106. Yeah. Evangelization is the most powerful and stirring challenge, which the church has been called to face from her very beginning. Indeed, this challenge is posed not so much by the social and cultural milieu, which she encounters in the course of history, as by the mandate of the risen Christ, who defines the very reason for the church's existence. Go into the, all the world and preach the gospel to the whole world creation. Oh, love it so much. I know, he's so good. But you know, but what he's going to do is throughout this this little section, he's going to lay out evangelization and morality. It's a difficult topic and he understands that. He understands yep. the nuances. Uh the beginning of par- of paragraph 107, evangelization and therefore the new evangelization, which as we know is right cultures that have been part of Christendom, right, that are now largely practically atheist right they're living. we would call them apostate cultures yeah. <laughs> do you really call them that yeah of course wow that is intense you know, like, uh, there is no culture more apostate than france right like the eldest daughter of the yeah. church and then the french revolution was like you know what we're gonna good kill point. yeah good nuns. point yeah we're just gonna chop their heads off let's chop off all the heads of the nuns oh my gosh what? that's the french revolution that's gonna definitely be put on twitter <laughs> EKSP, let's chop off all the heads of the nuns. He says, evangelization and therefore the new evangelization also involves the proclamation and presentation of morality. Jesus himself, even as he preached the kingdom of God and its saving love, called people to faith and conversion. And when Peter, with the other apostles, proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead, he held out a new life to be lived in a, quote, way to be followed for those who would be disciples of the risen one, right? That there were... And by the way, 
this was a major theme for the early church. Yeah. You had you had to make serious strides in your spiritual life before even joining the church. Yeah. In fact, in the RCIA rights, this is called the scrutinies. Right. And the scrutinies were literally the bishop of the city, because the bishop was the only church, basically. The bishop of the city, before he admitted you into the great Lent in order to prepare for your purification and enlightenment, right, uh, by the sacraments, they scrutinized you several times. And what they did was they brought your neighbors right. to the church. Right. Right. And they essentially gave public testimony as to whether or not you were living the Christian life to the best of your ability, right? And and learning about the gospel and all this stuff and living a prayerful life. They they literally asked your neighbors, is he just? Is he merciful? Is he kind? You know, and they scrutinized you because they wouldn't admit you. And what do we do? Our scrutinies are just a series of prayers. And maybe oh, yeah. the, there, there's the, a minor no, exorcism, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's no moral demands. I, I hardly, at hardly any place. Really, it's just about the annulments, right? Right? I mean, that's really the only like formal questions that we ask around it is like, oh, have you been married before? Okay, we need to get the annulments rolling, you know, and all that stuff and try to try to figure that out. Yeah, that's I was I was a guest speaker at an RCA class recently and and literally they took up two difficult topics, Mary, and then they did something in moral theology. And and someone said, What if I can't get on board with either of these? Which is a great question. Yeah. And my answer would have been, well, why don't we meet about this and sort through all of it? Or yeah. why don't you give me your questions now and tell me, like, what's 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 yeah. your back, you know? They were told, as long as you're making an effort to try and understand what the church is actually teaching here, everything's fine. You should just continue on the process of RCIA. Mm. The problem was one of the questions was a very serious moral question that most likely was a part of their personal life. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just not right. It isn't just as it does in proclaiming the truths of the faith and even more so in presenting the foundations and content of Christian morality, the new evangelization will show its authenticity and, and I love this, unleash all its missionary force when it is carried out through the gift, not only of the word proclaimed, but also the word lived in particular, the life of holiness. And then he goes on to talk about the lives of the saints as a reflection of the goodness of God. The one who alone is good constitute not only a genuine profession of faith and an incentive for sharing it with others, but also a glorification of God and his infinite holiness. What is the purpose of the Christian life to give glory to God? If you wanted to reduce it to one thing, John Calvin was absolutely correct. We live solely for the glory of God alone right? That is what we want. That is what we do, right? God saves us for his own glory. That phrase is for my name's sake. He uses that over and over again in the old and the new Testament, right? God saving us is also for his own glory because he's the only one worthy of glory in an absolute sense. And so what is evangelization, right? There's a great line from a, a Christian rapper. I can't remember his name, but he says, he says this. Right, just be. No, 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 <laughs> no. Uh, I said Christian. Um, just kidding. Uh, but he said, mission exists because worship doesn't, right? So the converted ought to give their worship to God alone. And until we do that, we're on mission, right? Mission exists because worship doesn't. So we go into those areas that don't worship okay, the one true get, God okay. and Jesus Christ. Uh, now, now, and he I was like, wait, wait, what? But even think about the mission of our own lives, colonizing our own hearts for the gospel that exists insofar as worship doesn't. Yeah. Right. And I need to bring all of those wherever, basically wherever there isn't worship, we must go to mission. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I like that. All right. 
at the heart of the new evangelization and of the new Dave just tried to talk and I cut him off the new moral life, which it proposes and awakens by its fruits of holiness and missionary zeal. There is the spirit of Christ, the principle and strength of the fruitfulness of Holy mother church. Now let's remind this is again, one of these golden thread moments where who is the agent of the missionary activity of the church in Redemptoris Missio? The Holy Spirit. So again, who is the principal agent by which we live the Christian life? The Spirit of Christ, right? Yeah. Amen. I was going to read that exact quote just so you know. Aw. But you were worried. You Did were we like, just I have to get that out. I have to get that out. Dave it's might so not say important. It. Dave right. won't get it. <laughs> he, he, he moves on to this discussion about the service of moral theologians. Yes. You know, Gomer loves moral theology. It's so, it, it is... It is very, very, very important, I found, yeah. to know a good moral theologian. Yes. Because there yes. are really strange issues, yeah. particularly like when it comes up to like life issues, like yeah. like birth and all this kind of stuff that we're talking about, mm -hmm. that you need to know like the different nuances of moral law. But he, he starts out by saying, the whole church is called to evangelization and to the witness of a life of faith by the fact that she has been made a share in the munus propheticum of the Lord Jesus through his gift of the spirit. Thanks to the permanent presence of the spirit of truth in the church, the universal body of the faithful who have received the anointing of the Holy one cannot be mistaken in belief. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. We have, we have the truth. Love is the end of the law. The end, not as it's annihilation, but as it's fulfillment. Saint, that's what St. Ambrose says, reflecting on St. Paul saying for love is the end of the law. St. Augustine says, what comes first, the keeping of the law, which leads to love, or love, which leads to the keeping of the law? And he says, of course, love comes first, for who does not love would keep a commandment, right? Right. And when you think about Jesus's response to the rich young man, where it was all second tablet things, you know, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, all that stuff, what is he saying? He's like, listen, you, you have to receive the love of God and then love your neighbor as yourself. If you do those two things, if you love God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, guess what you're going to do? You're going to keep the law. So Jesus wants to give us the love of God himself. Again, this is now returning to the Holy Spirit, right? In the economy of salvation, he is the bond of love between father and son. So that is what St. Thomas says. St. Thomas says the new law of the gospel is the Holy Spirit poured into our hearts. So the new law doesn't mean the old law doesn't matter. It now means the old law has been caught up and fulfilled in Christ. And that's why Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. The Pope will say that preposition as means to this degree of intensity. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it too. Yeah. At the end of that paragraph 109, he has this bomb quote. It's, it, he says, it is fundamental for defining the very identity of theology and consequently for theology to carry out its proper mission. So when the Pope is saying this, he's basically saying, hey, theologians at universities, listen to me. I'm talking to you right now. He says, he goes on, to recognize its profound and vital connection with the church, her mystery, her life, and her mission. Theology is an ecclesial science because it grows in the church and works on the church. It is a service to the church and therefore ought to feel itself actively involved in the mission of the church, particularly in its prophetic mission. Why do we have so many Catholic universities where the chair of the theology department isn't Catholic? <laughs> 
Well, so people might not know this, but when Pope Paul VI wrote Humane Vitae on human life, yeah. taking up the question of, uh, in particular, the new problem of the birth control pill, uh, on the steps of Catholic University, the day that encyclical went public, there was protests by bishops and theologians. Yeah, right? I remember. And, and they dared, or by priests and theologians, and they dared the bishops to do something. Almost none of them did anything. And that led to a moratorium on contraception that you will hear to this day people don't talk about. Right. John Grabowski, who wrote, uh, if you remember, I bought a bunch of books at Franciscan. I was reading one of the books um, last night, and he went, he said he wanted to hold a seminar on Humane Vitae like 50 years later. And he said, and Catholic University needs to host it. And he said, I don't know if there's such a thing called institutional penance, but this needs to be it. And they did. They hosted this right. um, the Fellowship of Catholic Moral Theologians event on the campus that he was the president of at the time. And it was, and, and it's amazing. And it was on the issues of gender ideology and like sure. all these things and sex and, and, and morality. Because these are the questions that contraception or contraceptive culture in the 60s unleashed. These are the things that Pope Paul VI warned us about. And so in a way you can say, while this document can be applied to evangelists and lay people alike, it's really written for bishops and to moral theologians. So these last two paragraphs, sections of, of the document, are ordered towards theologians and to bishops because we are doing our worst. And he's saying, no, no, no. If you really want to authentically follow the gospel, you can't reduce morality to just behavioral sciences. This is something that is a part of revelation and thus safeguarded by the magisterium. You must be faithful. You must be faithful. All right. When we come back after the short break and hear a good word from Ascension, who is sponsoring, obviously, this podcast. And uh, we have Mariah here so quiet this whole time in this hotel room monitoring our levels, levels, levels. We're going to hear something, but I want you to email us at EKSB at AscensionPress.com so that we can have your questions ready to rock and roll when me and Dave in a month or so sit down and start recording our question and answer series. So Please start sending these in. Our interview series is going to start kicking off. We got so much good stuff planned, but um, we want you to email us, eksb at ascensionpress.com. We'll be right back. I'm Jeff Cavins. I wrote The Activated Disciple because I know how easy it is to practice the faith and to study it, but what if we lived our entire lives without doing what we learned? God doesn't just call us to be students. He calls us to be disciples, to look and live like Jesus. If you yearn for a life that moves beyond just studying and believing, if you yearn to become an activated disciple, then this book is for you. The Activated Disciple teaches you how to take your faith to the next level so you can become an instrument for God to transform the world. To order The Activated Disciple, visit ascensionpress.com or Amazon. And we're back. Uh, every knee shall bow here talking about Veritati Splendor, the splendor of truth. One of the more difficult, but also uh, one of the legacy documents of Pope John Paul yeah. II. People will read this for decades, centuries even, millennia to come <laughs> yeah uh such an important document particularly when you put it in history we've gone through this document as as almost all of pope john paul's documents he ends with uh, a bit of a reflection on the blessed mother and i want to 
point out a, uh, a little bit of what he says in paragraph 120. He says, Mary is also mother of mercy because it is to her that Jesus entrusts the church and all humanity. At the foot of the cross, when she accepts John as her son, when she asks together with Christ forgiveness from the Father for those who do not know what they do, Mary experiences in perfect docility to the Spirit the richness and universality of God's love, which opens her heart and enables it to embrace the entire human race. We have to turn to our mother and and receive that beautiful, beautiful grace. Mary was the first disciple, and Mary was the greatest disciple. So let's engage in our sequela Christi by following Mary. When you remember that we are introducing people to Jesus Christ, he is the he is the word, right? Through which all of creation came into being. He is the word that inscribed the natural law in our hearts. He is also the judge that will judge our souls at the end of time. And the judge and the inscriber, the legislator of our of the natural law is also the merciful savior, right? So let's turn to him now in our Marian moment. And and I just have to, at the end of this paragraph, it's one of my favorite Marian teachings of all time. Literally, he says, Mary shares our human condition, but in complete openness to the grace of God, not having known sin, she is able to have compassion on every kind of weakness. She understands sinful man and loves him with a mother's love. Precisely for this reason, she is on the side of truth and shares the church's burden in recalling always and to everyone the demands of morality, nor does she permit sinful man to be deceived by those who claim to love him by justifying his sin, for she knows that the sacrifice of Christ her son would thus be emptied of its power. No absolution offered by beguiling doctrines, even in the areas of philosophy and theology, can make man truly happy. Only the cross and the glory of the risen Christ can grant peace to his conscience and salvation to his life. And if you've been reading this document with us, we'd invite you to pray with us this prayer that he offers at the end of this uh, paragraph. Oh, Mary, mother of mercy, watch over all people that the cross of Christ may not be emptied of its power, that man may not stray from the path of the good or become blind to sin, but may put his hope ever more fully in God who is rich in mercy. May he carry out the good works prepared by God beforehand and so live completely for the praise of his glory. Given in Rome at St. Peter's on the 6th of August, the Feast of the Transfiguration of our Lord. Brothers and sisters, let us too be transfigured by his grace. Adios. Pope John Paul, pray, pray for, for us. us.